0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. You and I are involved in matters much bigger than us. We could say that we have a gospel, but it's probably more accurate to say there is a gospel that has us. And we're caught up in it. If anyone cleanses himself, Paul wrote to Timothy, from what's dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, if you're a faithful Christian, you are a vessel for honorable use because you contain the gospel and present it to others. Note... By a vessel, we mean you're just a, you're a pot, <laughs> just a jar. In fact, you may remember Paul also said, we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Don't be offended by me. I'm reading you scripture. You are just a jar made out of dirt. <laughs> But the wonderful thing is not that that's what you are. The wonderful thing is what's inside the jar. The treasure of the eternal gospel of the living God. The gospel that offers salvation to mankind. The only gospel that can. That saves forever. That transfers souls from the domain of darkness into an eternal paradise. That's in you. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you're made of dirt or not. You are caught up in something so much bigger than yourself. For two millennia, men and women just like us have heard this gospel that we have. They've believed it. Their hearts have been utterly changed, and then they've gone on to transfer that gospel to others. It's been happening for a long time. For 2,000 years, this gospel has been taking alcoholics and delivering them, both from their addiction, also delivering their families from all the consequences of it. For 2,000 years, this gospel has been taking hold of people addicted to immorality and making them chaste. It's been taking hold of compulsive liars and turning them into men and women of integrity. It's not you and me doing this. Our gospel has been doing this by the power of God all this time. Towns, Cities, whole nations, and continents have been transformed by the power of the gospel that resides like a treasure within you. Too often we can take the attitude of Charlie Brown's sister in one of the Peanuts comic strips who scribbles on a piece of paper. When writing about church history, we have to go back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in 1930. (laughs) And there are times when our view of history is just that brief. It seems like we are the people, and with us the gospel and wisdom will die. As if we invented it and we carry it around, we're the ones who make an apology for it to others as we try to convince them of it. No, 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 no. (laughs) We are just swept along in something so much more massive. We might feel like the gospel rests on our shoulders. We rest on the shoulders of the gospel. It's not that way. We sometimes feel as if if we don't defend the gospel, it can't defend itself. If we're not out here proclaiming it to others, it will wither, shrivel on the vine, and die. It's all us. But for that, I like the analogy that the Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon gave. Quote, suppose a number of persons were to take into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they wouldn't object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. You and I have a solid gospel. It's untouched by human infirmities but it touches all human infirmities. It's unshaken by the affairs of mankind, but it touches all the affairs of mankind. It's uncontaminated by the worst of our sins, and yet it's able to take our most evil, contaminant sins and make them, cleanse us from them and make us pure. The gospel is bigger than us, and it's really the only solid ground on which we can put our feet in uncertain times. Paul, the apostle, is adamant that these are the things you would think about the gospel. They're the things he's been trying to convince the Galatians, a group of believers 2,000 years ago, to believe about the gospel he proclaimed to them, that it was a true gospel, a solid gospel, not something that Paul had invented or made up or borrowed from the apostles who were up in Jerusalem. No, but this was a gospel that came from Christ himself, a gospel eternally prepared and in time revealed through Paul and the other apostles to the world. Paul wants the Galatians to believe that, and the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul, wants you to believe that about the gospel you possess. It is not a flimsy thing. It is a solid gospel. So he's going to continue here the argument he's been making that his gospel is true, Last week, he explained that he had not gone up to Jerusalem for 14 years, except for one brief visit, for 14 years after his conversion. He couldn't have got his gospel from Jerusalem. And today, he explains just what happened when he finally did go up for an extended stay with the apostles. Let's see this in Galatians 2, starting in verse 6. And from those, this is the leadership in Jerusalem, who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Just as Peter, one of them, had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul is continuing to defend his claim that his gospel is not borrowed or recycled material, but it comes direct from Jesus Christ through a revelation. He has to make this defense because you remember those false teachers known as the Judaizers had followed Paul's path. Paul went to Galatia, it seems, planted these churches, shared the gospel. People believe it's a glorious time. Paul moves on. In come the Judaizers, who were these Jewish Christians who believe that, no, the gospel is not enough to just believe. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, by grace alone. No, that's not enough. That's all great, but you also need circumcision, law of Moses, dietary restrictions. God's people have always observed this, so you need to observe it too. Basically, what they were saying, as we're shown in Acts 15, is unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. They were adding to the gospel. And their argument to the Galatians seemed to be the reason Paul got that point wrong is because he basically went up to Jerusalem, heard the message the original apostles were teaching there, James, Cephas, John, And then he just misunderstood it, changed it, recycled it, and he's just preaching you some watered-down version of their message. So Paul strikes back with the sword of the Spirit and says, that is not what happened. And that is not the kind of gospel that I proclaim. What Paul wants to convince you of today is that on the one hand, his gospel, the gospel, doesn't need anyone. Jerusalem apostles, no one. But on the other hand, everyone needs the gospel. And those will be the two headings of the message today, that the gospel doesn't need anyone, but everyone needs the gospel. So let's see how Paul makes those points in our text, starting with that first point, that the gospel, it's a solid gospel, it doesn't need anyone to do anything for it. It's not like, Dagon, that old idol in Ashdod that fell twice on its face, and then, of course, the Philistines had to set their poor God back up. That's not the way the gospel is. No one sets the gospel back up. It doesn't fall. It's a solid gospel. It's not served by human hands as if it needed anyone See again here in verses 6 and 7, and then we'll skip to verse 9 as well. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me as I proclaimed my gospel. They added nothing. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, now skip over to verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me. What Paul wants you to know is the gospel doesn't need anyone first because the gospel doesn't need anyone's input those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, here is my gospel I proclaimed. There were those very great pillars of the Jerusalem church that everybody looks up to. They added nothing, nothing at all. Don't care what the Judaizers say, it's lies. They added nothing because the gospel doesn't need anyone to add anything. Paul had seen the power of the gospel already, long before he'd ever seen an apostle because it changed his life. It turned him from a murderous persecutor, breathing threats and violence, into a godly, gentle, selfless, missionary apostle of Jesus Christ. So when the Judaizers came with additions, yeah, but add this. He wasn't interested. Why would I add that to a gospel so powerful? A gospel that's transformed my life. I've watched it transform the Galatians. I've watched it change people's lives. Why would I add anything to it? It doesn't need anything. Why would you go to the Louvre with your little watercolors and ask, "Can I touch up the Mona Lisa? Is that okay?" They say, "Sure," and they bring it out of the case, and you just touch it up. Would this ever happen? The Mona Lisa doesn't need your watercolors, and the gospel doesn't need anyone to input anything into it, not even the great Jerusalem apostles. That's Paul's point here. The gospel is a heavenly Mona Lisa. It's already perfect. Not even the Jerusalem leaders. It's one thing for the Judaizers to say, hey, we'll touch this up. Let's add these works in. But he says, even for the Jerusalem apostles, if they had tried to add anything, not interested. The Gospel's complete. The gospel is perfect. The gospel is powerful. Don't mess it up. (laughs) There's nothing to add to it. The gospel doesn't need your input. This, of course, is very instructive for us today because, and we don't want to be hypercritical, but we feel this temptation also in ourselves. There can be a temptation to grow bored with the gospel, I'm not talking about the fact that in some places, some churches, some evangelists, that sometimes we may have a certain method of sharing the gospel or churches may have a sort of altar call or some way that they convey the gospel that's very repetitive and you might grow bored of that. That's okay. That's just a method. I'm not talking about becoming bored of the gospel because we're sharing it poorly. (laughs) What I'm talking about is sometimes we can become... Board of the gospel itself no matter how it is shared. We can begin to think the gospel's great but there's so much other stuff. I mean, have you even started thinking about how Christianity intersects with politics? Have you even thought started thinking about the antichrist and the end times and the charts and the graphs of what's going to happen later? And so, what ends up happening in churches when people get bored of the gospel itself of Christ crucified and resurrected is that you bring in, what shall we call them, gimmicks? You bring in gimmicks because you feel like your gospel is not going to draw people in. People are bored with it. We're bored with it. What's the next thing we can do? So, you make your services exciting, and we have nothing at all against a musical quality of worship and so forth, and we dim lights and stuff too, okay? so, But the problem is when we do things with the lights and the music and the service because we don't trust the gospel. That's the problem, not the music. The problem is when the music replaces the gospel as the draw of a local church. And whatever you win people to with is what you win them to, And you don't become a healthy Christian totally committed to Christ and His gospel, but in those locations you can become a Christian who has a very specific opinion about how worship should be done and how the music should sound and how the lights should look. Listen, who cares? How boring, how lame a thing to commit your life to. But it happens all the time because the gospel isn't seen as interesting. Politics is another one of those things that just seems so much more important, and it just seems so much more pressing, and whatever news you're taking in seems so urgent, and then the gospel is always calling you from your dusty Bible way back there on the shelf, saying, <laughs> don't you remember me? But you're so fixated on your phone, scrolling through, what did they do, and what's becoming of our country, and what about our children? Are these things important? Sure. Sure. Are they more important than the gospel? How could they be? When we become bored with the gospel, we try to input things into it. (laughs) We try to make Christianity about something else. Christianity is about the gospel. It's what it is. Did Christ really die on the cross simply to create one more political entity in a whole world full of political entities? No, he did not. That's why our pulpits should never sound like just an echo of Fox News or CNN or anything. Don't we have anything to say that they're not saying? (laughs) They who aren't believers, surely we do. We have a gospel, and that's what we're about, and that's what we're excited about. When we grow bored of that, then we try to input things in. The gospel doesn't need you to add anything to make it more interesting. Is the gospel so boring that we have to entertain ourselves with something else? Paul says, no. And the Jerusalem apostles added nothing to me, Paul says, nothing to my message, nothing to my calling, nothing to my ministry. Instead, what happened is these apostles merely recognized that Paul had the gospel. Look at this in our text. On the contrary, first thing they did is they saw. They didn't add, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who were the leaders there at that church, who seemed to be pillars, here's the second thing they did. They perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. The Jerusalem apostles went to the Louvre, looked at the Mona Lisa, and simply said, oh yeah, that's the Mona Lisa. It's not a fake. That's the real one. That's it. They had nothing to contribute. That's Paul's argument. He says, I'm preaching the gospel. And these Jerusalem apostles, they saw, they perceived, I have the grace of God. I'm working by His power. I've been entrusted with this gospel. It's from heaven. It's not from man. And they agree. That's the end. That's the end of their contribution. The gospel didn't need their input at all. They just merely confirmed that, yes, this was the gospel that came from heaven. How they saw or perceived this, I'm not sure. Was it because when Paul came down in Acts 15, he spoke with them about all that God had done through his gospel and they believed that? Probably. Was it because they could simply look at Titus, who Paul had brought with him, and see, well, here's a Greek who's come to Christ, his life's been changed by this gospel, so it must be true? Probably that factored in. Had they heard others talk about Paul's ministry? Probably. Whatever the case, they perceived this is the Mona Lisa, this is gospel. And that was the end of their involvement. The gospel does not need anyone's input. And the gospel doesn't need anyone also because it doesn't need anyone's influence. And this just seeps through every part of this passage, almost as an attitude (laughs) that you have probably noticed. Is Paul concerned holding his gospel saying, oh, how I need important popular people to approve of this gospel so that others will think it's true. <laughs> you tell me, verse 6, those who seemed to be influential, <laughs> that's how he talks about the most important Christians in his day, those, I say, who seemed influential, he says again in verse 9, who seemed to be pillars, and back in verse 2, those who seemed influential. Why not just call them influential? I mean, literally, they were influential. They were the most influential of any Christian at that time. So why add they seemed? It wasn't because he disagreed that they were influential, and it wasn't even that he was dishonoring them. This isn't a dig at them, because as you see, the right hand of fellowship, they were in agreement. They respected each other. But it's the point that Paul is trying to make here is he doesn't care that they're influential. In fact, he outright says that in verse 6 in his parentheses. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. It's very likely that the Judaizers not only claim that Paul had this derivative recycled gospel from the Jerusalem leadership, but the Judaizers, at least in Acts 15, they came up from the Jerusalem church, not sent by the apostles, but nobody knew that. And we're going to see later here in Galatians that there's a group that comes from Jerusalem from James and they're the ones who will convince Peter to sort of compromise on the gospel. We'll see that next week. And so probably the Judaizers were appealing to the very Jewish-minded leadership of the Jerusalem church, saying, see, they agree. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to... And Paul says, I don't care if they agree with that or don't. In fact, they didn't. We'll see that. But Paul says, I don't care if they did or don't. I mean, I don't care. I don't care what they were. In other words, Paul's saying, look, God's not ever starstruck and so I'm not starstruck when it comes to my gospel. I don't care if people are influential. If you were to leave here and go see a famous actor, think of the actor or actress that you would most like to see, and you see them this afternoon in Evansville of all places doing some shoot, and you see them, what would you feel? (laughs) We would all feel a sort of heightened heart rate and you want to talk with them, but maybe you're nervous Oftentimes, our desire to see those who have immense influence is because on a very subconscious level, you don't always think it out. You think, oh man, if I could just get my picture with them, my friends would think that's awesome. And if we befriended each other, they got a lot of money, they got a lot of, my life could be better. This could be exciting. So there's something self-serving, not always, but there's something usually self-serving about this sense of being starstruck by those who have great influence. Paul has no interest in that. In fact, what he says is God's not partial because God can't be served by human hands. So God's not amazed by actors or actresses, all due respect, but God's not amazed by those who have immense power and influence in this world because God really owns all the power and influence, and he does what he pleases. So there's no sense of partiality with God. In other words, if God saw an actor out there, he wouldn't treat him any different than if he saw you. (laughs) No partiality. This doesn't mean that Paul had no respect for those who were influential. I mean, he did go to Jerusalem to talk with them about his gospel. I'm sure he agreed with 1 Peter 2.7 that Peter wrote, where he said, honor the emperor. And Paul would honor the emperor and in the same breath say, "It makes no difference to me what he is. (laughs) Paul's life was devoted to proclaiming the gospel. The gospel doesn't need anyone. The gospel doesn't need people who are influential. Now, you and I, when we're thinking of strategies for making the gospel known, sometimes we can be tempted to think, oh, if just that person who everybody looks up to whether it be the Instagram influencer, the actor, the actress, the politician, or just the person in your sphere that everybody looks up to. They're the ones who call the shots. They're the influential ones. If they came to Christ, just imagine what an impact that would have. Now, there's some reason to that. There's some logic to that. But Let me just tell you, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's not really worth pursuing. And actually, the reason for that Is given by Paul himself to the Corinthians. Here's what he says, consider your calling. You interested in the influential people? You want them all to know Jesus? We do too. We love them, but we don't need them. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. How many Harvard PhDs? Okay. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We want the strong and the wise and the popular and the influential to know Christ, Good, for their sakes, not for the sake of the gospel so much. In fact, if you could think about people who have professed faith in Christ in very high influential places, if you lived long enough, you know, we wish them the very best, but it, it doesn't often stick. You notice that? And it grieves our heart. Sometimes it does. And many times it ends up backfiring and just, presenting a bad picture of Christianity to the world. The point here is not that they can't come to Christ because with God, all things are possible. The point is we don't, we don't need their influence to accomplish our task of proclaiming the gospel. It's a solid gospel. Like, well, we're so weak and lowly. Exactly, that's the point. That's who God chose to show that the gospel doesn't need any of us. If he picked the popular, people say, well, because they're popular. But if he picks us, (laughs) people run out of excuses to dismiss our gospel because if we could do it, I mean, come on, it's a powerful gospel. The gospel doesn't need anyone's influence. And this just means for us, like for Paul, we love those who are influential and powerful as much as anyone. That's the point, as much as. We love those who are not influential as much as those who are. We share the gospel with them as much as with those others. It makes no difference. God's not partial. I'm not partial. We don't say, you got a gold ring. You sit over there. You sit in the back over there. No. The gospel's for everybody quite equally because the gospel stands in no need. And that's Paul's attitude when he goes to Jerusalem to the most important Christians in the world. James, the Lord's half-brother, Cephas, Peter, he's important, John, John. Son of Thunder, John, these are important people. They write scripture. And Paul says, I don't really care what they were. Because the gospel doesn't need them. The gospel doesn't need our influence. It's fine. So that's the first point that Paul makes in this text, instructive for us, that the gospel doesn't need anyone. But now there's another point Paul wants to make, and it is that everyone needs the gospel. (laughs) That's the way it works. Let's look at this again in verses 7 and 8. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, those are non-Jews, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews, for he who worked... Through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Here you have two spheres, if you will, of ministry, and you have two apostles fulfilling those tasks, those spheres. They were not two gospels, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles. Same exact gospel in both cases. The Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 made that very clear, nor was it that Paul is saying, well, I'm the evangelist who's meant to go out to the Gentiles, so if I see a Jewish person, I just avoid them. That's Peter's job. I'm not going to tread on his territory. That's his job. Peter said, oh, if I see Cornelius, the Gentile, I'm not going to his house. That, you, you need to see Paul. You know, he'll talk with you. It's not that. There is actually quite a bit of overlap in the ministries of these two great apostles because Paul, even when he traveled, would often first speak in the Jewish synagogue. And he said to the Romans, I have this jealous, zealous desire for my kinsmen, the Jews. So Paul led Jews to Christ. Peter, for his part, was one of the first of the apostles to go up and involve himself with the Samaritans, sort of half-Jews. And then he went to Cornelius' house, much to the shock of the early Christians, and that's where he realized, oh, this is a gospel for everybody, not just the Jews. So there's overlap. Nevertheless, when it comes to their primary sphere or ministry, quite clearly, Peter, stationed there in Jerusalem, was focused on reaching the Jewish people. And Paul had been called specifically to go out, hence the missionary journeys, to go out to the gentiles. So those were their two separate callings. I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Paul says, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Now it's important to note, although those might not be categories you frequently employ when discussing groups of people, those two categories make up every person on this whole planet. You're either Jewish or you're not Jewish, that's what he's saying. And together, although in separate spheres, God had called them to work together to reach everybody. It's the same in the church today. You and I don't have a gospel that's just the gospel of the circumcised, the uncircumcised, North America, the United States. The gospel that we have, everyone needs it. Circumcised or not, every people group in this world needs the gospel that we have. The gospel doesn't need any of them but boy, do they need the gospel, every single one. That's why God specifically worked through Paul to go out there to them, worked through Peter to go here to them because everybody needed to have the gospel. It's clearly God's design here. You are to be my witnesses, he told the apostles, Jesus did, here in Jerusalem, to, the, to Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Is there a tribe hidden somewhere in a South American jungle that doesn't sin? Is there a village high up in a cold, frozen mountain of Tibet that has inhabitants who don't die? No matter where you go in the world, every person deals with sin, with guilt, with death. And it's the biggest problems they have. The gospel is the solution to the biggest problems every person has. Therefore, if you have the true gospel, you have a gospel everybody in this world needs. There's no one who doesn't need it. This isn't some cultural thing that we have. You understand that Jesus never set foot contrary to the Mormons in North America. He just never did. We've got this gospel from the Middle East over to us, the ancient Near East to us. This is a universal, global gospel. Do not think that your mom friend from the gym, who is not a believer, but seems like she's got it all together via her Instagram photos, seems like her life's going really great. She's very confident, works out great, everything's great, and here you are struggling with kids on your legs and, oh my goodness, you're having a hard time. You blew up on them this morning. What do you have to offer her? And so you just kind of slink over in the corner. Not going to bother her. Not going to mess her life up. Her life's messed up. There is a gaping hell underneath her life. And she could die any day. And the moment that she dies, if she dies without the gospel, she has no one to intercede for her. She has only an eternity of judgment stretching out forever. That's what she has. Don't tell me she has her life together. She does not have her life together. You have your life together because whatever other problem you have, you have a gospel. So when you die, Christ intercedes for you by the power of His own blood, the testimony of His own death and resurrection, and you are secure forever. So have some confidence. You have a gospel that she needs. Everyone needs the gospel. There's no one who doesn't need it. And you have the gospel. I know it's in a pot made of dirt. But in the pot is the treasure that the gym mom needs to get. So it's got to get to her somehow. Remember when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman and she said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? You know, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus didn't seem to read that in the instructions. He didn't really care because even though she's a Samaritan, so there's a cultural distance, even though she's a woman, so his disciples were looking like, is this okay? Traditional culture? Are you allowed to be doing this? He doesn't care. She needs the gospel. And so he's sharing the gospel with her of the kingdom. He has to preach his gospel to all creation. So do you have to do because everyone in this world needs the gospel. There's not one exception. Now, even though that's the case, we do also find here that while we're responsible to share the gospel with everybody, God does tend to call us, just like he called Paul and Peter, to specific spheres in which we proclaim the gospel. And that is completely okay. Notice in the text, verse 9, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles, that's our sphere, and they will go to the circumcised, that's their sphere. There's no competition It's just strategy. It's just, hey, we're limited and you're effective out there because he who worked through Peter here is working through you there. It's the same God doing the same work, but he, by his own prerogative, has put you in that sphere and he's put Peter over here in this sphere. No need for jealousy. No need for infighting. You go do your thing. Here's the right hand of fellowship. Go do your thing. I'll do my thing because everyone everywhere needs the gospel. It might have been easier for Paul to be an apostle to the Jews. He wouldn't have had to deal so much with the issue of circumcision, which plagued his ministry. It was an issue because he was going to the Gentiles, and yet it doesn't matter because he was called by God, and who can argue with that? God put him in that sphere. Paul's attitude in different ministries was, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And as we conclude today, I would encourage you to consider you're in a sphere too. No, you're not an apostle with a capital A. You're not Paul or Peter. But God, by His own prerogative, has put you in a sphere. There are lost people around you. They know you. You know them. For some of them, you're the only Christian they know. You're the only venue of the gospel that they have in their life. It's not an accident that you know them. And you might right now just... In your own mind, imagine their face. Him, her, you know who the person is. You're in their life. They need the gospel. They look at you, unimpressive as you are, a jar made of dirt, but inside you have the gospel. And we all have a choice to make. We're going to keep the lid on. We're going to take the lid off. we got to take the lid off. Say, well, I'm just a humble pot all the more reason. Open it up so they can stop focusing on you. Let them see the gospel that you have because they need it. Circumcised, uncircumcised, doesn't matter. Whatever sphere that you are in, those people have sin. They have guilt weighing them down to eternal judgment. And you have the solution. You have it. You don't have to have the perfect words in which to say it. You have the answer. There's that woman you know. You see her sometimes. She lives nearby. And she is going to mass frequently, trusting that that will keep her out of hell. And you know it won't. But you know it will. And you can tell it to her. Don't try to object like Moses and say, well, I'm not eloquent. Who makes man's mouth? Who makes him speaking or mute? You don't need some secret that's going to really fire you up to be a gospel proclaimer. You have the gospel. There's nothing needed to be added to it. You have it. All you need to do now is open the cage and let it out.